Welcome to episode 196 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. I'm a people person. This is an understatement, although I do have my limits. I don't love big, noisy, drunk crowds. Too unpredictable and sometimes scary, but big gatherings at a conference, I'm in my element. Who am I kidding? I don't need a big crowd to schmooze. I'm known for pulling out a business card, I have four different ones, on planes, trains, buses, and sidewalks. If I think I can add value, I don't hesitate to make a connection. And although it feels a tad old school, I still prefer sharing my business card to other options. Does anyone remember bumping? (laughs) Which is why it felt like a big deal when I decided it was time to stop carrying my business card holder in my back pocket. I mean, at that point, I hadn't left my house in four weeks. And if I did happen to go out for like a neighborhood walk, I knew I'd be steering six feet away from anyone. So... What was the purpose of carrying business cards? It was mid-April and I was just beginning to come to terms with how much our lives have been impacted. I think it was an important moment though, because after that, I started to make decisions for my family and my business that were grounded in this new reality. That's when I committed to continuing to host my free weekly virtual happy hours every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern. And if you're not registered, you can go sign up at nomorebadzoom.com. Those weekly gatherings led to many, many chats with colleagues looking for more info about how to improve their online facilitation and virtual event design, which led to the launch of the 5% Advantage program pilot a few weeks ago. And suddenly, I have a new way to provide value and earn revenue. Your challenge for this week. The only way to grow in this new environment is to accept this new reality. Fighting it isn't going to help. What's your version of putting away your business card holder? If you haven't done this yet, that may be holding you back. Reset what's possible, not based on limitations, but innovations. Keep finding ways to show up and add value. What's your version of weekly virtual happy hours? Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, onto this week's interview. Today's guest is a technology strategist and certified futurist. She is known for her ability to take complex technology topics and make them accessible to everyday professionals across multiple generations. She works with organizations that want to leverage social media, apps, smartphones, and the web to increase profits and productivity. She has entertained and educated audiences around the globe, including at Google, Microsoft, and GE. She's the author of two books, One Tech Action and The Social Media Why and has appeared in numerous publications, including Entrepreneur, Bloomberg, Business Week, and Forbes. Please join me in welcoming Crystal Washington. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Crystal, thanks for joining us from your home office as we're all homebound in (laughs) Houston, Texas. (laughs) I'm thrilled that you joined us. As you know, this is a show about building strong networks and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? When I think about leadership, I think of someone who is able to gather people together 
and have them highlight their individual strengths in a way that makes them stronger as a team and just accomplishes goals. And I, I think leadership is not something that is stagnant. The, the person who's leading today might be the person who's following tomorrow. So there's some flexibility there. I like that because sometimes uh, the role isn't tied to a title. It's, it's who has that good idea and can galvanize people around them. I yeah. agree. I mean, there's some people with the title that you will see their team members actually pick up the mantle and actually mm-hmm. lead. So just because you have the title that suggests leadership doesn't mean you're actually leading. So when did you start realizing you had some of these leadership skills? When I was a small child, actually. Um, and then maybe it's because I was a schemer to some degree. But I remember gathering children together. If there's something, you know, if we we're trying to get the adults to let us do something, I'd gather my cousins and we'd have a whole process we'd go through. Or if we built things, you know, I would be the one overseeing all the little pieces. So I would naturally do it. But it was funny. I was never someone who wanted to be the leader. I would just see something that needed to get done. And then I'd say, all right, guys, come over here. Here's what we're going to do. <laughs> That's how it worked. <laughs> I love it. Were you coming from a large family? Um, my, my immediate family wasn't large. I was raised with two siblings, but I mean, I had cousins and things like that that lived with us at times. And so it was enough people where things needed to get done. And so I could uh, leverage other people and I still work too, but you, you start to realize even as a kid, I knew that, you know, my sister was good at X. My brother was good at Y. My cousin was good at M and, you know, you just put everyone's best strengths together. And in terms of leadership, I'm not the collaborative leadership type where we're going to do the whole process together. I'm more the type where we start off, we break into pieces, then we come back and then kind of merge it together. Mm, Interesting. So were you labeled bossy as a child because of this? Because I've talked to a lot of other women on the show (laughs) who have a similar like history of like getting, you know, I knew, I knew what needed to get done. And I was like, let's just, let's just get it done. And of course they get sort of labeled in a way and like a put in your place kind of moment. Right. Or, or did you find it empowering? Were people like, oh, that's awesome. Let's go, Crystal. You know, I think it was how I did it. So I have, I have a, my little sister was labeled bossy. But I think because I didn't relish the role, like people just saw I was just the kid getting stuff done. It was almost like I was elevated for it, right? They're like, well, this is amazing. You have leadership skills. You're going to be a president. Remember as a kid thinking that sounds like a terrible job. So... so um, so no, luckily I was, I was one of the few women that wasn't labeled bossy, but I, I think it was just because there's, it's never okay to label little girls bossy, but I think it was the way I went about it, that it didn't trigger the stereotypes that people think of incorrectly in terms of bossy. Yeah. I think what you said about, even though you were stepping into these roles, it wasn't like you were seeking the limelight as you were doing it. You just saw the need where, you know, did you have an entrepreneurial spirit at a young age as well? Was that something that caught on or did you like develop? Oh, okay. What's, what's the story you're laughing over here? <laughs> oh, I'm laughing. Cause yes, I, I did. And it's, again, it's just because something in me was like, get things done. So I remember in elementary school having my business supplies confiscated. So I got a couple of my friends together and I noticed, you know, kids have money for lunch and I wanted some of that money. And so I talked to my girlfriends and one of my girlfriends, her mother was like an Avon lady and she had like a gazillion samples and she'd give it to us to play. And I was like, how many samples can you get a hold of? And another girlfriend was like the fastest friendship uh, bracelet braider I knew. Right. And then I knew how to do these keychains, And I was like, let's just create like these cool, pretty kits is what we called them. So we put one of each into a little baggie, seal it up, put a little bow on it. And we were taking all the little kids' lunch money. The little boys were even buying it for the little girls. 
And then finally, one day, um, our beloved PE teacher assisted by, I think it was the, uh, maybe it was the world history teacher or something came over and said, you guys have got to stop selling this on school property. Kids are actually buying your stuff and not eating because they like it so much. (laughs) So I had hustles all through school. It's not that I needed the money per se, but I would just, I remember in middle school, I noticed that, and I went to the, the first part of my middle school years, I went to a very rough school, Robbie, where there was like shootings and everything, gang members. I was cool with everybody because they just saw me as the little smart one that went about her business. And I realized, I said, hey, we don't get yearbooks until close to the end of the year. What if I created like signature books now? Now, someone who notices their environment, I was like, huh, we got bloods, we got crips, we got, I'm gonna do it in their colors. They can buy the colors of gangs. <laughs> so I created these friendship books, right? Because one of my neighbors, she was a retired artist. She was going into retirement home. She gave me basically supplies that would allow me to make this. So I started bringing those in and I, I sold out like in three days. And everyone's so happy. The gang members had their colors and yay. <laughs> oh, I love this. So you and I have something in common. Um, it's not that I went to a rough neighborhood school <laughs> <laughs> and had to figure out like, you know, what colors to design things in. But I, I also had an early hustle. I was in... I was in uh, my earliest is actually my dad had these like plastic baseball hats that were small and like you could like turn upside down for like, I don't know, like ice cream in them. I have no idea what they're for. Okay. But he somehow got like hundreds of them and every and I brought them to school in like fifth grade and was selling them and got yelled at. My father was like, good for you. Yeah, yeah. My, yeah right. the parents are like, this parents is Parents are like, this is very cool. And by, you know, junior high, I was selling gum and then candy in high school and then bagel sandwiches. Okay. So, I, yeah, I was taking orders at night and then making them when I got home and then mm-hmm. heating them up in the morning and selling them to get, you know, to give it to people. And I even had a plan for anyone who didn't pick up their sandwich my first period. There was always someone who would buy them. So... Yeah, and I, but my parents got their first BJ's membership because I needed a way to get candy at a better price. Ah. And they made, they made me pay the membership for the first year and I was buying it for a quarter, selling for 50 cents. And I mean, yes, like I never, my, my mother always said, you should have kept better books. I, I was like, <laughs> I don't know how much money I had. I had enough money for whatever I needed. That was kind of, yes. that's all I, you know, it's like you're a kid. It's like <laughs> I had money with what I needed something. So I love that early hustle. But did you know that that was like, a passion. Like, you know, I'm looking at, you know, what you have here and it doesn't, what I described, you know, in your intro, mm-hmm. uh-huh. it doesn't tell me anything about your journey. Like you're, you're in this right. amazing place. Like I, I'm excited to having this show because you're, you're uh, someone I know through the National Speakers Association. Um, you're held in high, very high regard there. You do so much. You give back to this like community in such a big, big hearted way. So I'm just kind of curious about the origins though of Crystal Washington, you know, like, you know, okay, so we got like the the like grade school. Like, did you ever run for office? Was that ever your thing? Like, was that you mean at school? Yeah. Oh yeah, I was like president of my class in elementary school. I was president of my class in high school. Like my senior year, I was um, VP of student council. My senior year, I was VP of the Lions Club. My senior, like senior year, I was everything. I had at my own line in my room. I remember my parents were like, "No one your age needs their own phone." I was like, "Oh yes, I do. I'll pay for it." Because I had a job two jobs in the midst of all these other things. And it's so funny when the call started rolling in, my parents were like, we're so glad you're not on our phone. This is, this is ridiculous. Because this was before the days of everybody having a cell phone. I graduated right before that came off. So 
Yeah, my phone was always ringing and they were just like, oh my gosh, it's like an office in there. I was like, I told you. It was an office in there. It, yeah, really, well, it I was. was. <laughs> I was a part of everything. So literally I was, it wasn't just social calls. I was busy. Wow. And <laughs> did you, did you head right off to school? Was that, was that the game plan? Yeah. For, uh, you mean college? I did. Yeah. Um, you know, what's so funny. I figured I would go get a business degree. And I had a high enough GPA. I was like in the top 5% in my class where I, I could have, and I'm African-American, you know, for people that can't see me. Um, so I was like, I, I can write my ticket at this point. I'm a woman. I'm African-American. My grades were crazy. All this, all these accolades I had. And I had all these universities that were looking for me, but a local university, University of Houston, actually offered me not only a full ride that wasn't monetary. So they basically said, we'll pay for everything. However many classes you want to take you know, staying on campus, whatever food plan you want. So it wasn't even a monetary amount. But then an individual college said we would also put money on top of that. I understood free, Robbie. Okay. So, so, so they, but I had to major in hotel and restaurant management. That was the catch. They wanted me to major in that because I had taken high school courses along there just because I was bored. I, I just do stuff. And so I said, okay, fine. It's basically a business degree where you have to like people. I can do that. And so that's actually how I ended up going to school. And I, I got other scholarships too. So I was like the college student that was living large. I had so much money as a college student, wow. bought a convertible, living my best life. Um, yeah, you're but, like, you're like, forget the freedom entrepreneurs of today. Like, you're like, I already lived that life. <laughs> it was, I remember being a college student, Robbie, telling people, my life will never be as good as it is right now. Because I was making so much money being a professional college student. And on top of that, because I have a hustle nature, I still found additional hustles, right? So I didn't have to work, but I was a secret shopper, like for a legitimate company, not like one of the weird ones. On So I'm, I'm wired going into restaurants, you know, recording what's happening. I would also do medical experiments. So like, I'd especially sign up for it before it was time for like finals, because then you're locked in a hospital room all week and all you can do is study. You have IV in your arm, you know, as they're testing you <laughs> sitting there making money off of that too. I'm wearing contact lenses, hurt my eyes. I'm helping out the college of optometry. They're paying me. So there was always a hustle. Wow, Crystal. That that hustle is strong in you. That's what's very clear. Yeah. So so hospitality though, I mean it's a solid, solid place to start. You you know, it's a business degree. You like people. Did did you then follow through? Is that that where you went next? Oh, no, I did. So in corporate America, I went right into sales and marketing because I knew I wanted to, in hospitality, I wanted to go in hotels. I didn't want anything to do at restaurants. The hours were long and just about everybody became an alcoholic that I met. <laughs> and then they all smoked. And again, I'm not being mean, but I, I'm in the industry. So I still know people today. That's, that's stress. That's just stress. So I was like, I'll be in hotels, sales and marketing. And so that's what I did. I went in there and at a very young age, I was blowing my numbers away on a dead market. Um, just, I remember I was like manager of the quarter, my first quarter working there because the number, I mean, I've, I was a really good salesperson, but I'm also a millennial, which means I get bored. And so I remember our revenue manager leaving. Our revenue manager is like the front end of accounting in a hotel. They're the ones who do the projections and they're also over the reservations department, weirdly enough. And they just in marketing. The revenue manager left and I went to my boss, this young millennial that was blowing her numbers out of the water. And I said, hey, I'm bored. I'm basically being paid to make friends. And I think we figured out in the last couple of years, I'm good at making friends. So I want that job. And my boss was like, are you crazy? And I was like, no, I'm really good at math too. Probably didn't know that, did you? I want that. <laughs> it was like, no one in this industry moves from sales into revenue management. 
I said, I hear you, but here's the problem that you have. I said, you know, I have this great record. I show up on time. You talk about how great I am. I'm bored and there's this position. So you can give it to me or I could find another company because I could still even do this job someplace else. And he was like, ah, crazy millennials, fine. So that's how I moved over there. And I was over a department of people old enough to be my parents and grandparents. I wouldn't even tell them my real age because I knew that they would just eat me for dinner, right? So I wouldn't lie, but I would never confirm what my age was. And uh, so no, I did really great over there. Blew those numbers out of the water too. I'm managing this department of people, having fun. And then there's this thing called social media that kind of came into the landscape. And me also still doing marketing there was like, wait a minute this is going to be big. And here's the epiphany I had that anyone listening to this now is going to think, well, duh. But at the time it wasn't a thing. I said, wow, what if companies got on these? Like what if companies start getting on MySpace or, or these other places? Cause at the time Facebook wasn't open except to, to college students. I said, a brand can have a conversation with their consumer. Coca-Cola can talk to Bethany. And so I remember going to my boss and, and saying to him, and he was an older, you know, older baby boomer guy. And I said, Hey, this social media thing is going to be huge. You should let me just a very small amount of time. Just let me do a little bit of research to figure out how we can leverage this. I have a feeling this is going to be big. And he said, look, kid, you're cute. And you make us a bleep load of money. And he didn't bleep. He said, stick to what you know. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. And so again, millennial, remember? So six months later, I quit my job to start a digital marketing firm. Everybody thought I was crazy. Like my family thought I needed medication because I left this good paying job. Because everything in me said, this is going to be huge. And so I built a digital marketing firm from there, started with small businesses. What year was this? This was in 2006, going to 2007, the beginning of it. So, oh, no, no. So here, I I started a little bit 2006, 2007 is when I quit. But here's where it gets funny. I quit in October, October 15th, 2007 is when I left. The recession started December of 2007. So I built my first business in a recession, growing it year over year. Um, and, and so, yeah, I start with small businesses because they're agile and you can talk them into giving you money and, and being flexible. And they start getting good results. And then I started attracting Microsoft and Google and British Airways as clients. And the speaking came off of that. So everybody's a member of some organization. And my clients would say, Crystal, you know, can you come speak at our monthly blah, blah, blah. And I would do it as a favor to my clients until I started getting too many requests. And I was like, this, this isn't billable hours. I can't keep doing all of this. And the very first organization I said no to, I said, I'm just, I just don't have the time. And they said, but we'll pay you. And I said, oh, and that was the beginning of my speaking career. There, there you go. <laughs> so I love the, thank you for walking us down this memory lane from being this, I'm going to use the word spunky millennial <laughs> who's, you know, like give, give me this opportunity. Obviously you're a hard worker, you're smart, you'll apply yourself, and you, you have a deep belief in what you know, even when others can't see it. Where does that come from? Because that's interesting. Not, it's not, that's not generational. Like, you know, different people yeah. of different generations can have that. But throughout your history, there sounds like there's always a moment where like, you believe something to be true for yourself, even if others can't see it. Yeah, I can't take any credit for that. That's something that's inherently, like my, my mother jokes about that even as a kid sometimes where she would tell me no, or I, I shouldn't do something. And I'd be like, nope, it's gonna, nope. And she says, I've always, one of my first things I used to say when I was younger, she said, is me do it. <laughs> so I, I can't take credit for it. There's something in me that when I know that I know something, I know it. 
you know, and I'm going to act on it. And people, people will catch up. It's okay. Um, and not catch up in the sense that they don't know better, but I know my path better than anyone else knows my path. I don't know your path. It's not okay for me to paint on your canvas, but you can't paint on mine either if I know what colors I want. So speaking of your parents, though, were, what were they like? Were they like so supportive and encouraging of all this? Or you said that, that in that moment, though, they were like, there was some doubt. They were, you know, you yes. were like leaving a well-paying job to take on. Is there anyone else an entrepreneur in your family? Like, is that even a thing? My, most of my family is like white collar. Um, but, not, my yeah. but my my family is also from the Midwest. Um, so I don't know, like. It's a little different. Now, I do have a family history of entrepreneurship that I can trace, you know, further back. But my immediate family, no. My parents were very supportive. I, I grew up in a household that put the fun and dysfunctional. But when I had an idea, for the most part, they were pretty supportive. But it's funny that I was so sure of myself as a child, my parents started to drink the Kool-Aid. So even, so it, it kind of made our relationship different than most parent-children relationships. So even when I quit my job, it wasn't, we don't believe in you. It was, I'm scared. Are you okay? Are you? So they still wouldn't question me outright because I've always been that person that's like, I got this. And they're like, okay. So it was more like that. It wasn't a discouragement. It was just, I'm scared. Are you okay? Do you need medicine? <laughs> so, <laughs> so what was challenging then? I mean, if, if you have this deep belief, you have like clearly the interest in the work, you have a talent for networking and connecting with people obviously you had a talent around sales. What was the challenge when you were like, I'm setting my own sale and, and taking this business, you know, to new horizons? Like what slowed you down or made, gave you pause? So starting my own business, there, there was no pause with that. You know, I would say if there was anything that was a challenge in corporate America and even starting my business for years, it was my desire for everybody to be okay with my vision. So I was going to act on it no matter what. But I was also someone who was addicted to being nice because as a woman, I have been socialized to be nice, right? Which is different than kindness. I had to learn that. And so one of my biggest struggles was being okay with the fact that people will weaponize your niceness, you know, whether that's clients, that's coworkers. But if you believe in kindness, which leaves room for justice, you know, I can kindly tell someone you are overstepping a boundary right now. I need you to step back. And not have any malice and it's okay. But that doesn't work with nice because it's not nice to tell people things like that. So I would say that was probably one of my biggest battles, be, you know, getting over my addiction to being nice and being seen as nice. That is that example you just gave is, is so apropos. Like that's a perfect example of the difference between kindness and nice, which I can't say I've ever stopped to really examine. Well, as you said that, I was like, oh yeah, that wouldn't be very nice. Yeah, but it but being super clear is is really important. And um, when we sort of make up reasons for why we aren't doing things, people then can poke holes of the reasons. And oh, this is an objection. I can fight with the objection. But if you're just simply like, you know, I sorry, I just I can't do that right now. Thanks for inviting me. That was really, you know, I really appreciated being invited. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's there's just like nothing left for them to do. Um, that's that's really cool. So. Uh, as you're building this and you're making this decision, so was, when did speaking come in? Like how long ago was that? Because So speak, I've been doing that full time now for about nine years, I think. So I I'd had the, yeah, so that came in pretty early. But what was funny is, so I had this marketing business. I was growing it. And I won an award from Houston Women Magazine. Okay. So I'm at this award 
show or war presentation. And one of the things that I received was this book called The Seven Women Project. It was like in a goodie bag. We all got one. The author of that book was like one of the magazine publisher who was giving out the awards best friend. So I sat down the next day and I read this book, I'm, you know, and it was just so much fun. And I just read it cover to cover in one day. And I went on social media and I was posting about how amazing it was. So even then, you know, nine years ago or so, I had a pretty big following. And so people started posting, oh, I just ordered 20 copies for my book club. That sounds great. I just went on, you know, Amazon and bought them. Well, the author saw it because her friend, the publisher was like, look at what Crystal did. And she messaged me and she's like, you magical unicorn. Do you know how many books you just sold for me? And then I ran into this author two weeks later at a networking event. And based on her book, I said, can I give you a couple suggestions that I think will help you sell this book if you do these things on social media? And when I was done telling her, she said, you know what? She said, I looked at your website. She said, and I see you want to be a professional speaker. Because at the time I was doing like baby talks. You know, when people say words like honorarium, which means they're going to pay you, you know, $500 to $200 and pat you on the head. But I wanted, I wanted to be a bigger one, but I wasn't there yet. So she said, I, I saw that. She said, and you know, I've been doing this for over 10 years. I'm going to turn you into a speaker. And this was Karen McCullough. Okay. So Karen McCullough is a professional speaker in the National Speakers Association. So when she told me this, I'm like, yeah, okay, lady. Ta-da! Here I am. <laughs> so <laughs> that's where speaking came from. And, and Karen began to direct me. And, and while she was helping me, I was helping her understand technology better and the social landscape on social media as it was shifting. Because Karen at the time, you know, she was a, a very much already a baby boomer even then, right? Um, well, I mean, she was always a baby boomer, but I'm saying in terms of age, she, she'd been in there for a while. And so, you know, I'm helping her. She's helping me. But where, where things really transitioned is there came a point where she said, you know, Crystal, because I stopped my marketing firm. She said, you want to do what I do. I'm a keynote speaker. You said, you want, you want to do exactly what I do. I said, yeah. She said, well, you've come a long way. She said, but my business is a full-time business, Crystal. She said, you still have a marketing firm. She said, you can never please two masters. And I thought to myself, lady, you must be crazy. This is how I'm paying my bills. But I trusted her because everything she had told me up until that point had worked out. And so I started ending my contracts. The ones that were already under contract, I brought those to natural ends. I didn't renew any others. I referred people where they needed to go. And as new ones called in, I'm turning down money. And my poor husband at the time, you know, we had just, just gotten married. And he's this ex-banker, okay? <laughs> and just very you know, solid savings. He's walking by me as I'm telling people no to thousands of dollars. And you see the look of fear on his face, but he's like, okay, baby. <laughs> Another person who has to trust that you know. Yes. It's like, okay. But within maybe two months max, my speaking revenue outpaced my marketing, uh, my, my marketing company revenue. Because I put all my energy and power behind it. So once again, Kira McCullough was 100% correct. I just had to trust and act. And, and it's not, I don't even think it's so much that I trust that I'm going to do, th it's not so much trusting my abilities, it's trusting my work ethic. I know no matter what, I'm going to work as hard as I am, can to make it happen. So it's not that I think I'm there, it's that I know I'm going to work my butt off to get there. Yeah, too many people focus their energy on the prize and not the journey to get there. Yeah. And so they do all these visualizations of like, you know, being on stage receiving the award, but none of the visualizations of the work they have to do mm -hmm. or scheduling the time to do the work. Yeah, yes. it, it's it's a 
it's it, you can see that and and people sometimes skate through just like you know I got A's without learning how to study you yeah. know that doesn't mean I was a good student yeah I just knew how to get A's and that's different than learning how to study um, it really is but I don't necessarily think it's a problem so we were probably similar it's not that I didn't know how to study but I understood marketing even in high school and I understood packaging and so my reports were delivered the most beautiful even in college like the I get my stuff professionally done. I'd go to Kinko's, get things laminated. My packaging was insane. And what I learned, and I didn't understand what confirmation bias was at the time, is that if the first thing someone gets from you is on a certain level, they're always going to see you at that level. So I could turn in a C paper in the middle of the term and get an A on it, where someone else who's a D student, if they turn in that same level, they're still going to get a D. And so right, wrong, or whatever, that is the world we live in. Now, I don't believe that's an excuse to turn in crap, but I do believe that packaging matters. Wow. That's, it's interesting to look back at what worked for you then and realize Mm -hmm. that there is a reason behind all of it now. So in the last, um, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 years, you have met thousands of people and presented in front of tens of thousands of people and, and influenced and entertained all around the globe. So your network has always been big and I'm has only gotten bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I love is actually I'm, I'm Facebook friends at you and you have one of the most entertaining um, <laughs> Facebook posts to, to follow. <laughs> um, really, it's good and it, it's yeah. engaging and it gets all of us chatting with each other and it's, it's not easy to do or more people would be doing it. <laughs> so <laughs> I could appreciate what it is. Um, I'm curious, as you think about nurturing and sustaining your network, and, and you have that sort of close-knit circle of people, which you know, clearly you're going to contain, uh, sustain those connections. But I'm thinking like the second and third sort of layers out, the, the people maybe you see once a year at a conference or you worked with five years ago or you went to school with you know, a long time ago. How do you think about that? Like, What are your habits or philosophies or practices around just nurturing sort of the, the larger network that you have met over the years? I think the thing is, is that you, you can't, our networks are so large now, we can't have the types of relationships that our parents had with their networks at our same ages, right? It's, we're connected to too many people and, and me on a whole nother level. But my genuine, my, my general life philosophy is just be genuine. And I think people see that when I ask you how you're doing, that is not a greeting. I am asking you, how are you doing? You know, and I'm pausing to listen. And my husband thinks it's hilarious because sometimes people start to tell me too much, like, at Walmart or something. <laughs> He's like, oh, I mean, people have told me about all kinds of crazy stuff. And I'm just like, I'm, I'm sorry, or you can do it or yay, <laughs> you know, or whatever. But I think it's just that whether you see someone, you know, every week, whether you see them once a year, once you, whether you see them every five years, however you connect with them in that moment, just be genuine. Don't try to pretend like you've seen them more than you have. Or if you've been checking them out on Facebook, tell them, you know, I know we haven't talked in three years, but I, I peek at your Facebook post from time to time and girl, that thing you posted about your cat, you know, or whatever else, just, just be genuine. That's it. That's it. I don't think there's a methodology methodology to it. I know some people put everybody into a CRM system, whether their clients going all the way out. I don't think there's a wrong way to do this, but my way is not as systematic. And this is coming from a salesperson. So it's funny because a lot of salespeople are like, no systems. I get it. And I like systems. People know when you care. And people feel when you're genuine. That's it. So is there something that you're, is there anything you're doing um, that is more thoughtful? Like, 
you know, are, do you mail cards? Are you, are you a person who uses like, okay, you're nodding. So tell me a little bit about that. Cause again, that's the thing that's a little different in this online world. Yeah. This is interesting. Let's just point out the fact that I'm talking to a millennial who just described herself as a millennial. <laughs> yes. And you're like, yes, I use the postal mail. Oh, I, I, I believe in tangibles. Even that's one of the things that set me apart in corporate America. Like my, <laughs> my peers didn't understand because I was younger than my, all my sales peers. But what they didn't understand was that one, I, I took the time to understand someone's culture. And so if someone came to me and I understood that they had a different cultural background, I treated sales differently. You know, some people you have lunch with first and you learn a little bit about them first. Others, you need to go through all the details first. And once they're comfortable that things are in order, now they can have a meal. Some people, the meal isn't appropriate at all. So I was culturally competent before the language was in place because I grew up in such multi-ethnic environments that my friends were from everywhere. I actually went to them at the time when I was in high school, I went to the most diverse high school in the United States of America. So, you know, I understood that. Number two, I reflected people back at themselves with gifts. So an example, um, we were trying to get the waste management account. I was specifically, we were trying to have them book a big meeting with us and they've been trying to get them for years before I got there. My main contact at Central Proposal she emailed me back, Robbie, and she said, um, I'm so sorry. I'm under the weather. I'm still working, but it's going to take me a while to get to this. You know, I'm just, I'm not feeling well. No problem. I went to Target. I found uh, in the little college dorm area, a little, uh, little trash can that was the color of waste management's color. Okay. I went and I got some oranges and some echinacea and some Vicks Vapor Rub and basically made her a basket, a sick basket. And then, you know, instead of like candy or cookies, so all the little stuff you would need for little health remedies. I got some shrink wrap paper, uh, shrink wrap bow. So I'm back in the office with a blow dryer bought and I'm shrink wrapping. And the other managers are like, what are you doing? And I'm like, shh, magic is happening. I threw the contract in there with it. Okay. Went to her office, didn't ask to see her at all. Handed that to her administrative assistant. Get back to my office. I have a call from that client saying, oh my gosh, Crystal, this was so amazingly thoughtful. Thank you so much. Oh, I just faxed over the contract. So if, it's, if the fax machine isn't near you, go find it. I did that kind of stuff all the time. So even as a speaker, now I send people stuff. I have a client that loves bacon. I am always sending, I've sent him silver bacon ornaments. I've sent him bacon candles. I've sent him every kind of bacon treat known to man. I was speaking to a client two weeks ago. She's very stressed out because she's a third party planner. And so she's not dealing with what most planners are where it's just their own events. She's dealing with multiple companies and multiple contracts and it was a lot. And so I went online and I found her back massager for a chair and I shipped that off to her. And so I get a call from her and you hear in the background, and she's like, Crystal, this is amazing. Thank you. I already feel so much more relaxed. So that's the kind of stuff I do. It's not, it's not methodical. So it's not like, let's go through all our clients next year or last year and send them all reeks. It's not that. It's me. If I talk to you and I hear something and it makes sense. I got you. Let me, let me find a way to delight you. Let me find a way to let you know that I see your situation. And so I don't really, it's, it's not one size fits all. It's I'm talking to this person. Here's where they are. This is what I can send them to make them happy. The, the phrase that comes to mind is that they will feel seen yes. by your actions. Yes. And, and use the word delight. That's another sort of like, you know, what you're hoping their experience will be, but more than anything, you're seeing them and they feel that they, you know, you're, you're acknowledging who they are. There's also a humanity to this, you know, like we're all just sort of robots trying to get contracts signed. And then you come <laughs> in and you're like, let me just deliver some, you know, echinacea and oranges. And, and people are like, 
Whoa. And yeah, that's, that's tremendous. Where do you think that idea came from? Like, is this again, just like a thing? Have you seen other people do it? Like, no, it didn't come from me watching other people. I, I come from, I will say this, my family immediate and extended, they're some of the most thoughtful people you'll ever meet. And I think I absorbed that from my parents and my aunts and uncles. They're just very, th- I just remember as a kid watching one of my favorite uncles. And I remember watching the way he would talk to homeless people. And I remember how he would shake and if the older man was older than he'd shake his hand and he'd call him, sir. And how are you doing today, sir? And just very humble. And I'm just noticed watching this. I think it just got into me and how you treat people. I like that. I like it's it's cool to see the manifestations of it today in all these creative ways. Um, are you a person who convenes groups of people? Do you like do dinners and gatherings when you were traveling? Were you the type to like meet up with people or do you need to like, you know, stay in your zone? I, I, speakers are so different sometimes around this. I'm very sporadic. So for the most part, I am, ex- I'm probably a more extreme introvert. So in a time right now, like COVID-19 where people are like, oh my God, I got to get out. I am fine. And I'm, I'm married to a man who would never leave the house at all if he didn't have to. Right. So we're like, this isn't so bad. Um, but what, it's funny. Sometimes something comes over me and it's like, you need to gather these people together. And sometimes it'll be random names. So there are times where I've spoken at events where I'll get the speakers together. But there's also many times you're like, we're getting together. And I'm like, eh, and I just run in a corner and read a book by myself in my room. <laughs> so it, it's random. It's just whatever's put on my spirit. It's whatever's put on my heart. I think what I love is that you trust that, that either direction, you're okay with it. There's no judgment. I think some people in that same situation would feel judgment for themselves not, not from other people, but about how they're making choices. And you're like, right now, I feel like I'm called to bring people together. And right now I'm, I'm definitely not. And I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go over here and recharge. I am uh, never been described as an introvert or a wallflower. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I've been working from home for over five years. And so, you know, Zoom and Skype before that has always been a great way of connecting. But I've always had certain times of the year where I knew I was going to have a lot of people, a lot of energy um, so it is interesting. I, I'm, that's why I'm hosting a lot more like virtual happy hours and things like that. Um, by the time this airs, I will have probably done them for three months, three months of uh, weekly virtual happy hours because uh-huh. I do want that pull of people all together and it's not quite the same, but you know, I, I value the networking in that way. Um, and I, obviously the change is going to happen here, right? Changes are different. Yes. What were you going to say? So, so what's funny is uh, some of my close friends, like people I, I travel, that's another thing. I'm a travel fanatic. Like I, I travel all over the place and do weird adventure travel and I have minimal fear and I'm crazy. But these really close group of friends are laughing at me right now because they're like, you want to see how introverted Crystal is? Like when I started getting a bunch of requests for virtual social events, I was like, oh, too much. It literally, my reaction is the same as when I start getting too many real life, you have to show up events. I'm like, oh gosh, I got to shut it all down. So my friends are cracking up because they're like, even from home, when all she has to do is get on a computer, Crystal wants to go run and hide in a corner. So when you said that, I was laughing, but I think it just shows that we're all different and that's okay. And we just have to embrace whatever it is we need because some people crave it. And, and when they get those invitations, it helps them feel more connected and they need it. And then some of us, the way we recharge is by ourselves. And then once we're recharged, we come back and we're like, we, I actually gathered some close friends together for another, like we've done this now a couple of times, a virtual hangout. And it happened to land on one of my friend's birthdays. 
who is a true, true introvert. And um, her wife said she's she's probably busy. <laughs> we're, we're in a pandemic and no one can leave the house. <laughs> she'll 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 be probably doing something else. And she didn't come on the call. <laughs> I mean, that's you know, can I can I tell you what I've learned to do over the years? Yeah. And this isn't so much the introverted thing, it's because there are people that demand our time and there are people that ask to pick our brains, right? And so here's the thing. I don't mind. I'm actually a very open person. I, I tell people my whole blueprint when I feel led to do so. Like I've, I've even been told before, this is crazy that you give away all your competitive advantages, but I have to feel led to do it. And so there are many people that try to pick our brains that it's not, I don't know, their energy's yucky, right? And, and so what I've learned to do is instead of saying I'm busy, because it's not the truth. Like I can't sit, like telling someone you're busy when you're not, I'm not judging anyone, but for me, that's not telling the truth. So now I'm having an integrity problem. So what I've learned to say, and some people get it and some people don't like it, but it's the truth. I say, you know, I really appreciate you. I'm not led to have lunch with you right now, but I'm wishing you much success in what you're doing. So I'll quickly say, I'm not led to do this. I'm not going to lie and say I'm busy. I'm not led to, or I really appreciate the invitation. I won't make it, but I hope it's great. I I love that you're talking about this because Bob Berg just on LinkedIn uh, today or yesterday, I was reading, he was actually did a little video. Bob Berg is like, you know, the networker's networker. Like this is his jam. That's what he does. He's so, he's so um, passionate about this. And he was talking about how to say no with kindness, basically. Mm-hmm. And it, and it's what you're talking about. There's a way of like, sort of like being very clear and appreciative, mm-hmm. but very clear. Yeah, you're, like, <laughs> don't, you're not going to ask me to lunch again to pick my brain because I've made it very clear I'm not led to do it. But I do wish you what same thing with telemarketers when I'm not messing with them. Occasionally, if I'm having a bad day, I'll do crazy stuff with telemarketers. Like I've even recorded some and put them on social media before where like I'm, I'm like trying to get a credit card for McDonald's. I do all kinds of weird stuff or, or all kinds of crazy stuff. But when I'm not doing crazy stuff with them, it's just, you know, you know, I really appreciate you so much. I have no interest. Why are you should? Well, let me stop you at your sales pitch. It's, it's not going to work for you, but I want you to get onto a call where you might make a sale but I do wish you much luck for the rest of the day. So I'm giving you good energy. And then, and, and you see how that, well, thank you. You're welcome. Click. You click. <laughs> so we're, we're wrapping up uh, in a minute. And this is one of my favorite sort of questions. Uh, if we were reconnecting a year from now, and I, and I know we will be staying in touch, that's pretty exciting. But we're, if we're talking a year from now about all of your successes, what are we going to be celebrating? A year from now? Hmm. Well, seeing as how we're kind of in the midst of COVID-19 right now, um, my biggest success a year from now will be being able to get out of this house and travel. It's not about the people. I have a severe travel addiction. Like sometimes I go to like nine countries a year. My favorite place to vacation is in the middle of the Amazon rainforest with people who live there. So no running water, no electricity. Like that's, that's my jam. Okay. So it's not even about work stuff. My business is great. Um, even if I don't get another gig for, until next year, my business is actually still fine. Like I'm, I'm a great saver. Success for me is just getting out of this house and getting on a plane and hanging out with some people whose language I don't understand. That's my success. That's all I want to talk about a year from now. <laughs> wow. I, in fact, in some ways, a remote place like that might be a nice place to hunker down right now. Yeah, except, <laughs> like, except we bring disease to them. So that's the that's only true. bad thing. Just, that is the da- downside. And there's no internet to stay connected with the rest of the world. So I, I don't know if that's always bad, though. It's oh, see, wow, Crystal's such an introvert. <laughs> I love it. So uh, how can folks find you and follow your work? Easy peasy. 
All they have to do is go to crystalwashington.com. Crystal, spelled like a rock crystal. Washington, hopefully spelled like the only way you know how to spell Washington, dot com. And right there, you can find links to everything and contact me any kind of way you want to ask questions. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere in the near future. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we're at a point where we can joke about it. So uh, <laughs> I will have all of those links, including your LinkedIn, your Twitter, uh, links to all your books on Amazon at ontheschmooze.com. Crystal, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Crystal. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 196. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources in today's show, as well as nearly 200 archived episodes on this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. The 5% Advantage program pilot has been a great success. It's coming to a close this week, and I've already learned a lot thanks to pilot participant feedback. The next iteration of this four-week experiential program will begin on June 12th. If virtual events are a part of your business plan, you need to keep improving your skills when it comes to online facilitation and virtual event design. Learn more and register at the5percentadvantage.com. That's the number five, the5percentadvantage.com. If you enjoy this episode with Crystal, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review in Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week. We'll be interviewing another talent professional who has achieved success in their field or industry. I ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.